everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, fascinating fungi and underrated candy. So they're cryptic. They're absolutely everywhere. You have fungi on every surface of everything in your house. We have a beginning and an end in many ways. Um, fungi don't. Mycelium lives in plurality incarnate. It is constantly moving, growing in all different directions. There's no central brain. There's no central decision-making center. And so like life as we know it on this planet was essentially terraformed by plants and fungi. So they don't just take over the world. They are the world. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share, leave a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest is fascinated by fungi. And I have to admit, going into this, I knew fungi were important, right? Like anybody else, I could look at a mushroom and say, I don't really know what that thing is doing, but it has to be doing something important. I never realized how fascinating and how important fungi are in our past, in our present, and for our future. Our first guest is fungi expert, Dr. Gordon Walker. So why are fungi important? Fungi are incredibly important, and they're at everywhere on our planet, every interface of life. And it's something that people don't think about because they're generally microscopic. You often can't see them. And even if they're not microscopic, if it's mycelium, it's hidden down in soil and inside of wood. So they're cryptic. They're absolutely everywhere. They're omnipresent. You have fungi on every surface of everything in your house, and yet you don't see them and you don't notice them until they create the fruiting bodies, their reproductive structures generally. So that's the little molds you would see on food or it's the mushrooms you'd see out in your lawn. Or maybe it's like, you know, some other weird growth you'd see somewhere and be like, what is that? And yet fungi are all around us constantly. And we have really no idea what they're doing, at least from like a layperson point of view. Um, in essence, what fungi do and why they are so important is they're specialists at recycling carbon. So in our ecosystems, there's a lot of leftover plant matter, especially. And if that would build up, you would just have like huge deposits of compacted plant matter that would never really turn into soil. And so fungi have evolved a suite of really powerful enzymes to help break down um, complex polysaccharide linkages and carbon into smaller units, which then uh, other microbes can go ahead and eat. So they are sort of a keystone species in the first step towards creating soils. And that's part of why they're so important, especially in terrestrial ecosystems. The thing that I always wonder is, right, I see a mushroom on the forest. Mm -hmm. Like, what is that thing? <laughs> I guess so, I, like, I, yeah. it's a mushroom, but what what is it? So what, what is it? I mean, I get this question a lot. And it's a, it's a great question because it's still something that people misunderstand. You know, people think that, oh, mushrooms are plants and they're all these other things. Like, no, mushrooms are fungi. Mushrooms very specifically are the reproductive structures of the mycelium or the the body of the fungus that is usually below that part that cryptic hidden part I was talking about and the mushroom is the visible reproductive organ of that mycelium so it's like the fruit or a flower and it's analogous in that it is uh, producing sexual spores to help disperse uh, the range of that mushroom and sort of see the next generation uh, of mycelium and continue the fungus um, cycle in the soil are they so the the bigger part of it then is below ground yeah i mean it it's tough to say because you can't ever really see how big the mycelium is you know like 
the the world's biggest organism is this giant patch of armillaria or honey mushroom mycelium that's out in Oregon. I'm going to go visit in a couple of months. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's something like 10 miles or more. Like it's an enormous organism that's all contiguous, but it's like a couple centimeters deep in the soil. So it's absolutely massive, but it's not like it doesn't have that much biomass. The biggest, heaviest organism on the world is this giant stand of aspen trees that probably also has mycorrhizae with it. But like this giant chunk of honey fungus is just the mycelium in the soil. It's not the mushrooms themselves, right? So the mushrooms themselves are just the reproductive organs of this huge patch of one giant piece of mycelium that spreads out, you know, over like a giant national park kind of thing. So... Are, are they alive in the way that plants are alive or alive in the way that animals are alive? They're alive in the way that fungi are alive. Uh, it's, a, it's a separate kingdom, right? So, so they're all eukaryotes. So we have, um, in backing out towards the, the tree of life, right? We have archaea, which is sort of like weird extremophile things. We have bacteria, which are prokaryotes, and those are just tiny little single cell things. And then we have all of eukaryota, which is... Uh, stuff like amoebas and protozoas, we have animals, we have plants, and we have fungi. So those are different kingdoms, the, the plant, animal, and fungi. Uh, fungi are really unto their own special thing um, because they don't move around like animals, but they also don't do photosynthesis like plants. Ultimately, they're a little bit closer to animals in the sense that they are catabolic. So they are breaking down organic matter to produce sugars. And then they breathe CO2 and water the same way that we do. But that's kind of where the similarities end. Um, fungi use a, a polysaccharide called chitin, which is present in a lot of bugs and like arthropods. So they're like, there's a little bit of a relationship there. But like generally the way that fungi live is so different from the way that animals and plants live. Like plants have a defined structure, right? They grow up, there's stems, there's leaves, there's parts that do photosynthesis, there's, there's roots. So there's these sort of defined structures. Human beings have heads fingers, toes, we are, we have sort of a, a top and a bottom and we know where our constraints are. You know, we are, we have a beginning and an end in many ways. Um, fungi don't. Mycelium lives in plurality incarnate. It is constantly moving, growing in all different directions. There's no central brain. There's no central decision-making center. Every single leading tip is like its own little brain. And somehow these thousands of little tips growing through the soil are, are all able to communicate and talk to each other at the same time and coordinate their behavior enough to then produce a mushroom when the rain comes. What? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a little mind blowing, but it's, you know. So then is an individual mushroom that I see po poking out of the forest floor. Mm -hmm. That's not one organism. That's it, it is. Each, it is each one, one yeah. isn't a separate one or each one is. So, so <clears throat> think of the mycelium below. Um, there's a, let's say there's a big patch under usually what we're talking about are called ectomycorrhizal fungi. So these are mushrooms that are associated with trees. So you can think of like, think of a really big oak tree and all around that oak tree, maybe under the drip line of where the, the sort of the leaves are, you'll find like a bunch of mushrooms in a big circle or something around that tree. So those mushrooms are all related. They're all from the mycelium that's connected to that tree. Uh, if you have another oak tree 50 feet away, you might have a completely different mixture of mushrooms coming up under that oak tree because that oak tree has a different a set of associations. And the thing too is mycelium uh, isn't, like I said, it's plurality. And so you can have mycelium kind of mixed all meshed together. And so there's like a larger body of fungus where you have like a bunch of people that have kind of forgot where they beginning and end. And so they're all down there like sharing nutrients, vibing with the tree, and then they're producing mushrooms um, that are 
the mushrooms are producing their own distinct spores for that particular mycelium, but like everything underground is kind of messy um, because they're all sort of linked. And there can be Every- there can be competition, there can be mutualism, there can be all sorts of weird stuff going on. Man, so they, are they taking over the world? That's what I feel like the plot <laughs> is going to happen. Um, right? I feel like this is the next eventual thing is that they then take over the world. I would say they already control the world. And I'd say that we just haven't realized it because, like I said, they're kind of cryptic. They're kind of hidden. But, like, if we got rid of fungi, like, life wouldn't exist as we know it. And the, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize the importance of fungi is that plants, as we know them, basically would not exist without fungi. Plants, when they came to land as little tiny algae things, how do they colonize? How could could algae colonize land? Algae needs to be in water, right? One of the first steps was for fungi and algae to team up and become symbiotic, where the fungi would help them keep water in and provide structure, and the algae would do the photosynthesis to make sugars. And that's basically what lichen is. And lichen, as like one of the first land organisms, uh, the fungus is able to produce little tiny threads that will creep down into the rock, kind of inter- intercalating between cracks in the rock. And then when it rains, those threads swell, they crack the rock, and then you've just created little shards of rock, which over time become dust, become soil. And so like life as we know it on this planet was essentially terraformed by plants and fungi. So they don't just take over the world, they are the world. How come the best thing we've figured out <laughs> so far to do with them then is just eat them? <laughs> We do a lot more than just eat them. Uh, I think the promise of eating them is something that like attracts most people because that's your first experience with most mushrooms. As many people eat a mushroom, they you know some people like them, some people don't like them. Like I got lucky; I found a puffball at age five, and my mom was like, "That's a mushroom. We can eat that." And I took it home. I was like, "What is this savory marshmallow? It's incredible!" Um, and that left a big impression on me. Like, wow, that was a cool mushroom. I want to try more. And and so food definitely led me into trying more mushrooms. Um, in terms of like applications for mushrooms, there's, there's lots of them. Uh, we're looking at, we're sort of poised on the edge of what people are calling a mycocultural revolution. Uh, and the idea is essentially that we can start using fungi for a lot more than just food. Um, they are sustainable protein. They can be building materials. Uh, you can use mycelium to make, um, shipping packing materials that are biodegradable, that are sustainable. You can use it to make insulation for houses. Um, I've seen people make like canoes and coffins and all sorts of like kitschy things out of it. Um, there's several companies right now that are working on textiles, fabrics, sort of mushroom leather type products where they want to put them on leather coats and couches and all this stuff. Uh, there's tremendous potential in like the space of medicine, therapeutics, because there's all sorts of novel antibiotics, um, cytotoxic like cancer drugs. There's like a huge class of molecules that are being explored, explored within fungi uh, as potential you know, cures for various diseases. I mean, like statins that people use to control blood pressure, those came from mushrooms. There's all these like lectins and things involved in immune immunity and immune response. Um, so there's a tremendous like potential for these in the field of health. And there's also mental health and using philosophy to like help people overcome trauma and, and things like that in their lives. So uh, there's a lot more than just eating them. <laughs> if to kind of crystallize it for me, Sure. On a scale of one to 10, one being like, we don't even know what this thing sticking out of the ground is. Mm-hmm. 10, we've got this figured out. Any question mm-hmm. anyone can imagine, we have the answer to it. And then some. <laughs> where would you say we are in our knowledge of them right now? <clears throat> I don't know if I can give you the most authoritative answer on this, but I would say we're somewhere around like a five or a six. Like we know a lot. Um, I think in the, in the overall estimation, we know about 14,000 species of mushrooms right now. 
It's estimated that there's about 40,000 species of mushrooms. Uh, and then in the world of fungi in general, it's estimated that there's somewhere between like 2.3 and 3.8 million species of fungi out there that like we haven't necessarily gotten a handle on um, because there's, there's mushrooms. And then there's also the yeasts and the lichens and the filamentous fungi. And there's just, and molds, there's like such a vast variety of the different kinds of fungi. And most of them are microscopic. So you would never see them as a mushroom necessarily. Mushrooms are clearly sort of like, the vanguard of the uh, of the fungal world because they produce these like beautiful fruiting bodies and they're very like engaging and you can eat them and you can learn all this stuff about them it's harder to get interested in something that's like a microscopic mold that you can never really see you know but those yeah. things can be just as important because they can cause um, rusts cause like massive amounts of damage in agriculture and cause like huge crop losses all over the world at the same time like we spray all these fungicides in our fields to keep fungus away without realizing that uh, there's this, this uh, fungus called um, wheat lacoche or uh, Eustilago matus corn smut. It's a it's a thing that infects corn kernels. And in America, we think it's nasty. It turns these uh, corn into like sort of big, uh, fleshy, gray-looking gall things. And in Mexico, they love it. It's a, it's a delicacy. And here in America, we spray fungicides all over the place to get rid of it. And it's like a fungus is actually making corn more nutritious. It's upping the, the protein content. It's making it taste better. And yet, like... It's this, this weird dichotomy of how, like, we, we love to hate fungus. And especially in agriculture and other cultural practices, like, people, like, do all they can to keep it away uh, with sort of forgetting that, you know, this might actually be a benefit to us if we thought about how to better control it and use it as an ally. So. I guess it's just because I kind of think about, about it as being, like, not clean. Yeah. I mean, but nothing is cl- Like, quite frankly, like, if you have something clean, if you were – if you took a baby – and brought them up in a clean place, that would be the sickest kid in the world. They would have every single allergy, every single like sensitivity. Um, there is something to be said for like letting kids crawl around the dirt and like, you know, you want to generate an immune response and like, it helps if you get exposure to, you know, I frequently when I'm feeling kind of sick, uh, I'll be like, I'm going to go mushroom hunting just because I like, that's my happy space. And I'll be like snotty and feeling awful when I get out there. And then after a couple hours of digging around in the soil and smelling mushrooms and touching stuff and being covered in dirt, you'd think I'd feel worse, but I actually feel better. I come home and I'm like, my stuffy nose is gone. I feel great. My immune system went through the roof. Okay. So I don't think there's mushrooms living inside of us necessarily, but there are fungi and that kind of stuff that are in us, right? There are some kinds of yeast and things. Yeah. We, we have a fair number of yeast and fungi that live on our skin. Um, and for the most part, they're, they're not harmful. Um, we do know about like fungal infections. Everyone's familiar with like a yeast infection that women have to deal with. And like there's various um, topical skin infections, ringworm and different things you can get on your skin. Most of those are caused not by some awful fungus that's invading you. It's simply something that was there already. And like the balance of your microbial ecosystem got thrown off because there's a change in pH or maybe you were too sweaty for too long or what, you know, there's some growth of bacteria or something that caused a shift. And then the fungus fungi are ultimately opportunists. So mushrooms and molds and all these things will do what they do best in their environment. But if their environment drastically changes, they're going to do what's best for them. They're not going to keep doing what you want them to do. They're going to keep doing what they want to do. And so that's like coming from the world of winemaking. That's something you see all the time um, because that's dependent on a fungus, yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, where you have this like giant vat of sugar and you put the yeast in and you want them to turn it all to alcohol. The yeast, though, are smart. They're like, you know, we realize if we turn all of the sugar in alcohol, we're going to die. 
So sometimes in conditions are a little weird. The yeast will shift and say, yeah, we're not going to finish that last little bit of alcohol. We're going to like concentrate on trying to survive for like the next round. And winemakers don't like that. Winemakers are like, no, 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 we want you to finish all of that. We want you to blow through and not leave a bunch of sugar in our wine because then it's, it's open for spoilage kind of thing. So again, yeah, yeast are on us. We have it part of our microbiome, but it's all about opportunity and the balance of the ecosystem. So, Do they seem to have any kind of an intelligence? There's definitely intelligence. It's what they call network intelligence. So it's not intelligence in the way that we think about it, that we have a central brain. But like I said, they have all those little hyphal tips that are growing in the soil and somehow they're able to all coordinate. So, you know, imagine like some sort of like massive transit system that is like self-regulating and like, you know, imagine, you know, the New York subway system, but somehow all the trains know when and where to go kind of on their own. That's an example of like network intelligence. And that's kind of what fungi and slime molds exhibit. So you've heard of slime molds? They're, um, they're not fungi, technically. They're other little organisms that, you know, you've seen time-lapse of them growing through mazes and stuff. They can, like, navigate mazes and find food and avoid light. They have all these sort of, like, examples of intelligence. But they still, you know, they can do simple problems like solve a puzzle and do these various things. But they don't have a, they don't have a brain. They're, in fact, slime molds are one giant cell. Slime molds and mycelium are different organisms but behave in similar manners and they both exhibit this this network intelligence and ability to coordinate decisions across you know distances um without like neuron potentials or anything else that we understand as as thought so is that kind of the difference between like actively thinking versus responding to just external stimuli the fungi don't get together and be like hey you know what there's this property down there if we go down there there's some great soil for us well, They're I think just... they, they can sense because they can be like, ooh, we can tell that there's some good stuff for us to eat down there. So they might intentionally move down there because they're it's because they're chemo taxes. They're moving towards something that they want. So they can sense that. Um, are they making like a conscious decision? Maybe not. I, I like to think of it as like, you know, you see one of those like producer music boards from like a studio and there's all the little like levels and dials and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, that's kind of how I think about it. It's like there's some level of like messing with the dials where they're like, OK, we've hit enough. You know, the levels are up. We're going to go. We're going to go for it. Right. If they have enough of the stimuli that says do this thing or move away from this thing, they'll start doing that in an active way. And you can even like there's examples of where uh, if you put you know, like a fungi on a plate and you give it a food source, it'll move towards the food source. Uh, and because what it does is mycelium grows it in all directions equally until it finds food, and then it concentrates all its resources on the food, right? So it's growing all equally until it finds something, and then it puts everything into that that food source because it's like there's food there. If you then uh, pick up the food source, clean away the mycelium, and put the food source back, mycelium will remember where the food source was and grow towards it again. So like it has memory even though it doesn't have a brain, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I'm going back to their taking over the world, man. <laughs> so I, I'm going to tell you, they already took over the world. We live it's in their too, world. It's too we late. just don't see them. <laughs> um, are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Sure, shoot. Best fungi slash mushroom? It's a tough one because I have to qualify it. Like I have so many favorites, and it shifts constantly based a little bit on season. Uh I definitely do have a few favorites. Uh, morels are excellent. Um, there's this thing called butter bullets that are incredible. I get one here at Napa called Amanita Velosa that I absolutely love. Those are some of my favorite edibles. There's also really cool mushrooms that I just like to take photos of. There's these things called hydnellum, which are little tough, uh, bitter sort of polypore tooth fungi, but they have these droplets of what's called gutation or liquid on them. You might have seen like the bleeding tooth fungi. It just looks 
absolutely unreal and crazy and really cool. Um, so those are some of my favorites. And I know there's, there's so many things out there that can just be utterly mind blowing because you come across them and you don't even recognize them as a mushroom. And then you find out later, like, oh, that was fungus. Like, whoa. So most overrated, like, oh, overrated. somebody's talking about Portobello again. <laughs> and everybody thinks uh, it's so great, but it's a jerk or something like that. I mean, just just as a side note, I like Agaricus bisporus is what Portobello, Cremini, and button mushrooms are all the same species of mushroom. They're just grown in slightly different ways or a slightly different strain of the same thing. Um, I think like the fact that everybody thinks that's what mushrooms are that makes them a little overrated because it's like there's like hundreds of delicious mushrooms. There's hundreds of bad mushrooms too, but there's like you know something like. 40,000 mushrooms and only like a couple hundred on each end are going to be edible or, or poisonous and everything else in between is just a mushroom. Um, I'd say maybe overrated mushroom. Like people absolutely love chanterelles and they're good, but they're not like, they're not the best. Um, you know, I think people tend to hold things in certain regard because they are familiar with them. Even porcini, people really, really like the sort of big king bolates and porcini. Um, but some of my favorite mushrooms are ones that people aren't necessarily aware of um, because they're not as highly regarded. They're not as highly uh, touted. Um, and so I think certain things kind of get over, overrepresented. Um, Amanita muscaria is another one that like, I think people get so stoked on it because it's that classic red with little white dots on it. Um, it's poisonous, but it's not deadly toxic. And so there's just a lot of like misconceptions out there around certain mushrooms. The, um, uh, which one do you think of? Like you look at and you say, Oh, that one has a lot of potential. I mean, are you talking like for biotechnology, are you talking for food, are you talking for environmental restoration? What, uh, what's all the potential? The, all of the above, I guess. <laughs> Let me ask you okay. the really hard, like, okay. however you want to define potential. Sure. Um, so I think right now, some of the most interesting mushrooms are what are called white rot fungi. So those are mushrooms that have evolved to digest wood. And there's several levels of mushrooms that digest wood. There's white rot, brown rot, and then like composters. So this is like first, secondary, and tertiary saprobes. Um, white rot fungi are things that can break down lignin, which is a really complex polymer in wood that crosslinks uh, cellulose and gives it wood its structure, its, its density. And white rot fungi have these very advanced enzymes to break down lignin because it's a super complex molecule. And so we've been harnessing the power of white rot fungi, and this is stuff like uh, oyster mushrooms, Ganoderma, reishi mushrooms, uh, lion's mane, these kinds of things, to mine enzymes to do uh, making biofuels, to do other like industrial processes. Uh, we've also been looking at them to do like bioremediation of like carbon compounds. So like certain people out there have shown that in a lab you can get like an oyster mushroom to eat like cigarette butts or potentially eat hydrocarbons and oil pollution it's really difficult to actually translate that kind of practice into a uh, wild situation because they've tried to like take oyster mushrooms and put them on an oil spill they don't do what you want them to do because oyster mushrooms do what they want to do not what you want them to do um, but i do think there's tremendous potential as you said to uh capture the power and chemistry of some of these white rot fungi and use them as allies in uh, fighting climate change and trying to sort of make sense of the mess we've made of the world. Follow this up with a lighthearted one. Do you consider Toad from Mario to be a mushroom? Uh, yeah, I think he's pretty clearly an Amanita muscaria. You know, he's a little guy. So. Is he the most famous mushroom-based character? 
Ooh, he might be, you know, I mean, Mar- the Mario mushroom is definitely like the one that everybody knows. And that's part of why Amity Muscaria is so well, uh, you know, recognized around the world. I guess I can't think of any other famous mushrooms. There's there's plenty in like anime and like uh, I, I'm amazed once you start recognizing mushrooms, you start noticing them everywhere because it's like I've talked to people who are like they're hikers, professional hikers or something like that. And they've gone like the whole Pacific Crest Trail and stuff like that. I'm like, do you see any mushrooms? And they're like, no, they didn't notice any ever. And then you're like, well, here, look at my Instagram. Look at these pictures of mushrooms. And then next thing I know, for like weeks on end, people are just DMing me pictures of mushrooms every day. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I told you they're everywhere. You just like have to key into it. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing with media. You've you've watched shows and movies and things where there's mushrooms in them and not realize it was a mushroom until you're like, oh, my gosh, that's a mushroom. Best place to find them? Uh, in the woods after rain. Uh, you know, the mushrooms do grow everywhere. You can find them in the desert. You can find them in the Arctic. You can find them pretty much anywhere you can imagine, but you, there's a few basic things that really help if you have plants around. So they have carbon to eat and you have lots of water, you're going to need rain or at least some snow melt, uh, moisture, humidity, et cetera, to, uh, to get the mushrooms to grow. Cause that is the biggest trigger, right? Is the mycelium's down in the soil. Uh, if it doesn't have any water, it's not going to swell. If the water goes down and the mycelium swells up. That's when it says, okay, now is an appropriate time to produce a fruiting body. And it's because mushrooms need moisture to develop. And the spores, when they come out, need moisture to um, kind of germinate, nucleate, and go down into the soil and start growing again to continue the mycorrhizal network. Does that really always happen super fast? Like, I, you know, one, all of a sudden, boom, there they are. Or is it just you don't notice it until they're done? So there's some mushrooms that like come up and disappear within like 24 hours. Um, there's this class of mushrooms called ink caps, which are like generally little tiny things that'll grow in wood chips. There's some bigger ones too, um, but they'll come up and essentially melt. They don't, they don't even disperse their spores by wind. They just like, they come up and their cap turns to black goo and it melts and drops all over the ground. And that can happen in like 24, 48 hours. So that's, that's a really fast cycle. Um, a lot of mushrooms will be, They'll come up and kind of exist for about a week or two, and then they'll get moldy and rotty and full of bugs and kind of just like disappear into the forest floor. And then there's stuff like polypores that can, you know, persist for an entire year, maybe five years. There's this one uh, called the agaricon, which can live for like 80 to 100 years on a tree. It's parasitic on the tree, but very, very weakly so. So it's like year after year, it's building layers on layers on layers, um, which is one of the things you can go to the forest and you'll see lots of stuff that are like conks on trees and more often than not, if they're on the side of a trail, someone will come by and knock it off. And that always upsets me. Cause I'm like, you know, that conk could have lived for another like 20 years, but somebody just thought it'd be clever to like whack it off and be like, <laughs> I didn't know they had such a long lifespan. Some of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, so I was talking about the medical potential for fungi. Yeah. A lot of those polypores because they're so long lived are full of antibiotics of cytotoxic compounds that can fight cancers. Um, they have really complex like polysaccharide linkages that can, help stimulate our immune system. And that's because those things are built to last, right? They're mushrooms that have evolved to not get molded over, eaten by bugs. They're going to exist for like 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So they're full of stuff that's really good at keeping the mushroom whole. And we can take those compounds and use them as, as medicines and therapeutics. How can I tell if they're poisonous? That's what the thing is. Like, <laughs> I've always wanted to like pick one up, but then like, Okay, so so behind me, I have two posters. Can you tell which one's poisonous? The one on the bottom? It's <laughs> <laughs> the one on top, actually. But that's kind of my point. Is I get this question a lot. Is people say, hey, how do you tell what's poisonous, what's not? And I say, you don't. 
Everyone just wants a rule of thumb. And for fungi, there is no such thing. And I know that's a disappointing answer, but try rephrasing it as this. Uh, the way you learn what's edible and what's toxic is by learning one mushroom at a time. And the way I like to think about this is it's like playing an RPG. When you start an RPG, you have one spell, you have fireball, and all you can do is spam fireball. You know, you kill the zombies, spam fireball, but eventually you level up because you're out there killing zombies, you gain experience, and then suddenly, wow, I just learned lightning. Now I can cast fireball and lightning. And then as you're out there casting fireball and lightning, you like pick up another spell. And so mushroom hunting is very much the same thing. You, you got to learn like one good edible mushroom to start. And there's a few really easy ones. You can learn something like chicken of the woods. It's this big orangey yellow polypore. It grows on trees. If you find a big orangey yellow polypore growing on a tree, it's the only thing that looks like that. It's going to be latiparous or chicken of the woods. If you learn that, then maybe you can learn a chanterelle, which is a little bit more complicated. It does have a few lookalikes, but you can kind of like, as you get along in your mushroom journey, you learn more and more spells, more and more mushrooms. And you also, as you're learning the edible ones, you start to learn the toxic ones. And that's how you kind of start to build this repertoire. Where do you think this goes? Like, what do you think the future holds? Uh, I think the future is hopefully bright for our partnership with fungi. I think there's a lot of challenges we have to uh, face with what's happened with our climate. And I think like the human influence on this planet is being felt more and more. And it's like the people who are still saying that the climate change hasn't occurred are they're going to become in the minority because as the world fundamentally changes, as our food system changes, the weather changes, we're going to have to adapt or we're going to die as a species. And I think fungi, because they were some of the original um, terraformers of this planet, are going to be one of the main pillars of how we actually try to recapitulate ecosystems. We have to go to Superfund sites and reforest them. We have to sink massive amounts of carbon to stop our planet from becoming too hot to be habitable, basically. And fungi are a huge part of how we're going to be able to buffer the environment. Um, we're going to be able to like use them to help reseed plants. We're going to be producing sustainable foods. You know, there's there's too much animal agriculture going on right now. I'm I'm an omnivore. I don't think that we should all go vegan, but I do think it would help if everybody in the country could cut their meat consumption in half and supplement that with mushrooms. I think the other big thing we'd get out of that wouldn't be just like a positive boon for the climate. We'd see a huge improvement in health too, because fungi have a massive amount of dietary fiber in them. And that's the thing, people don't realize how little fiber they're getting in their diet. And like, when I say fiber, I don't mean go out and eat a box of Wheaties and like have a very uncomfortable BM. Like I'm talking about like fiber that we need to live and feel full, feel satiated, to stock good uh, bacteria in our guts. And I think fungi are absolutely essential um, source of nutrients that have been largely ignored because people kind of just look at them like the cheap agaricus bisporus, the little button mushrooms you buy in the store, are not appealing to enough people to have them want to eat them at every meal. And so like what I'd love to see is a much larger selection of edible fungi become more available, become, you know, easier to access in terms of price and availability and, uh, and really see people eat more mushrooms because I think health would improve. And I think we could really uh, help our environment by shifting some of our protein needs to, to fungal based stuff. This isn't, you know, your area of specialization necessarily, but I think mm -hmm. the, the question is an obvious one whenever we're talking about mushrooms. Right now, there seems to be a big push to kind of move into the, um, what is it, the psychedelic ones. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you see potential there or is this kind of a fad? I think it's a lot more than a fad. I mean, I think the sad thing is that like we were there in the 70s and then it was like Nixon for very racist reasons decided to shut down, you know, start a war on drugs that was like, essentially just an excuse to put people in prison. Uh, certainly if you look at the history of it. 
Uh, right now, what we're seeing is, you know, stuff like Michael Pollan's book, the Johns Hopkins studies, there's some really major momentum moving towards uh, showing the value and efficacy of psilocybin and psychedelics in general towards mental health. Uh, we certainly have a mental health crisis in this country. You know, the number of people who have issues and can't find proper help. You know, if you've tried to look for a therapist or something like that, it's, it's, it's very difficult and most people can't afford it, don't have the time, don't have the access, et cetera. Um, I don't think psychedelics are a silver bullet. I think that there's a little bit too much kind of projected onto them that they can somehow solve all your problems. You still need to go through like the work and the effort of actually tackling your problems. And I think taking psychedelics in a therapeutic setting is going to be where they're going to be most effective rather than people just kind of like going off on like vision quests in the desert kind of thing that, cause that can be dangerous. And like, certainly like psychedelics are very powerful and they can cause like a mental break. They can, they could make you very unwell, although they are generally very safe drugs compared to like other drugs out there. You can't really OD on one, but you can have a mental psychotic break as a result of taking them in an inappropriate setting or inappropriate dosage or, you know, without proper support kind of thing. Um, so I think there is massive uh, potential for it. And I'm really excited to see like Oregon pass this 109 measure. So they're going to actually, there's not in place yet, but within like the next two years, they have to have a system for there to be assisted psychedelic therapy um, appointments happening in Oregon. And there's a lot of places that are decriminalizing. So like uh, Oakland, Berkeley have done it, Denver's done it, Ann Arbor, Santa Cruz. There's a number of um, cities and municipalities and even counties around the country that have started decriminalizing uh, psychedelics and, and specifically psilocybin too, because it has a lot of potential to help people. And from what we've seen, it has very little downside, right? If you can cure someone's alcoholism in one or two sessions, that's a lot better for society than letting that person continue to like, you know, relapse in and out of stuff until they eventually get in a car accident and kill somebody, you know? So there's, there is real potential. Staying kind of in that similar area, but also more onto the the broader topic of it. Do a mm -hmm. lot of mushrooms have that chemical or genetic makeup or whatever that is that, or is that unique to that specific kind of mushroom? It's not unique. So it's, I mean, psilocybin is just an alkaloid and there's a lot of different, like mushrooms contain a lot of alkaloids and plants do too. Alkaloids are compounds that some of them are bitter and poisonous and some of them are trippy. Some of them are just, you know, whatever they are. Uh, psilocybin is mostly present in psilocybe mushrooms, which is the, the genre of mushrooms. There's a bunch of different species of psilocybe and they grow all over the place. The most common one is one called psilocybe cubensis. That's what people are generally growing in, you know, things as, as magic mushrooms. Um, the native range of those is like Florida, Cuba, sort of the Southeast. They like really tropical warm regions. And so if you see psilocybe elsewhere, it's probably a different species. The majority of psilocybe are little wood decay fungi that are growing in like wood chip beds. So like all around the Bay area, we get psilocybe growing, um, but it's outside of like a bank America or like a, a apartment complex or something like that. It's like well-watered wood chip beds where they occur, uh, which is hilarious to me. Cause I'm like, the legality of those things is a very weird gray area. Cause you can't make a mushroom. You can't make a plant that exists in nature illegal. It's, it's there. It's only yeah. illegal if we go pick it with the intention of consuming it as a drug. If you picked it without knowing what it was, if you're like a landscaping guy and you're just like, oh, I want to get rid of all these mushrooms, that's not illegal. It's only illegal once you pick it with the intention. And that's the weird legal gray area, right? Because if you're out hunting Strange, around a Bank of right? America and a cop's like, what are you doing? You're like, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. It's not illegal. But if you're like, I know <laughs> what I'm doing, then it's illegal. 
Right. right. So, so yeah, there, there are there are other genre of mushrooms that contain um, psilocybin. There's some Penalia species. There's some Genophilus species. There's actually a fair number of mushrooms that contain very, very, very small amounts of psilocybin. Um, but usually psilocybin is uh, heat, not heat stable. So if you cook a mushroom, you've cooked, you know, and this is a good reason to you want to cook most of your mushrooms because you want to cook the toxins out. Um, more often than not, there's bad stuff uh, that could hurt you if you, you know, are eating a mushroom raw. So it's a really good idea to cook all your mushrooms. Um, psilocybe would be an exception because you actually want the psilocybin uh, intentionally. But it could also be quite uh, upsetting if you were to eat something not knowing uh, that there's psilocybin in it. And that would not, that would, you know, again, that's where the mental break comes in because you think you're just having dinner. Next thing you know, you're tripping it. Um, that's all the questions I got, man. Is there anything you think that we missed or what's kind of coming up next for you? Oh, geez. Uh, well, I, I do social media on Instagram and YouTube and TikTok. And I think my main goal is to uh, present visually engaging mushroom content that stirs up people's emotions. And I do some, I don't know if you've seen what I do. I know you talk to some risque people, but I have some sort of risque mushroom videos as well. I even have an only fungi. And I think you know where to find that. It is, uh, <laughs> it's only fungi. Uh, but okay. I have, I put some of my more risque things on there. <laughs> you know, I realized that like me making videos of talking about mushrooms takes a lot of effort out of me and I have to like edit them, put them together and stuff like that. Right. I have to be good on camera to make a video work. Or sometimes I find a jelly fungus and I can kind of just squish my finger around in it and it makes a very intimate sounding noise and people like that or, or hate like it. That. Either way, it causes an emotional response. And the whole point <laughs> is to get them to stick around long enough to actually read the caption and hopefully learn some information um, so I kind of have fun being a little subversive on social media and, uh, pushing people's buttons just a slight bit. So I want to thank Dr. Walker so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him and learn even more about fungi, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter and Instagram, and we have also included his information in the episode description. Okay, let's go ahead and bring in John Shaw. Do you feel like people generally listen to you? I do, actually. And a lot of times people take what I say seriously when I don't mean it to be taken literally. Whose fault is that, though? If you say something that is supposed to be a joke and other people take it seriously, is that your fault or is that somebody else's fault? Well, if you ask my wife, it's always my fault because I don't I don't either present it clear enough or I don't. You know, I don't follow up with an apology right after. For instance, uh, I she could just be walking by and I'll say like a snarky comment or something. Like what? I, I mean, I you know, something something about her, maybe the, what she's wearing or, or her clothes or something. Well, that's your fault, dude. You can't say that kind of stuff. No, it's just almost like a flirtatious type of thing. Like there is no... There is no like, oh, hey, you look like shit today. But like she immediately takes it that way. A lot of the way that other people take it as well. So I, maybe it is me. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe I just got my own answer. Yeah, I think you kind of just had a little journey of self-discovery there and found out that, yeah, you're kind of just an asshole <laughs> when he comes yeah. around. Yeah. But do you think people and other like outside of your personal relationships with family, do you feel like people listen to you? Yes, but I, I would argue that I feel like we don't really listen to each other anyways. I, I, I feel like there are very few people that actually listen to others. Well, my listening has gone down significantly, I would say, over the last 10 years, how much I listen to people. I've actually gone up. I think I've gone up 
a hundred percent in the last ten years. I think I listen more now. Yeah, I'm I'm almost reversed. I'm much more willing to talk now and less likely to listen. <laughs> it's got, so this is the kind of thing that fascinates me is that now that we're grown adults, it's interesting to realize that how many other adults are complete idiots. But as a kid, you were basically listening to complete idiots for most of your life. <laughs> like, think of how many adults are morons. And then think of a kid, think of how as a kid you listened to all adults and now realizing that most of the people that you probably listened to were idiots. <laughs> I, I, I just have applied it recently to, to hiring people to do things in my home. Same thing kind of growing up. You think you're being told what's right, then you end up coming to find out that Santa's not real at 25. <laughs> That's really where it all starts. <laughs> They've been lying to us our whole lives. Sorry, are you just are you trying yeah. to tell me that life is just one big lie? Oh yeah, that's pretty much that's what it is. I would say that that's that's all life is. All right, well that's depressing. Let's let's let's, let's just move on real quick. <laughs> well, yeah, we got deep there. Uh, we might as well just give some sh- give some shout outs here, huh? Cuz that's what the people want. That's what the people get. That's what they paint. Oh, that's okay. Changing Ooh, up a little yeah, bit. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Uh Gwen Watts, appreciate you. Curtis T. Oscar Paulson, Martin Sundberg, uh, Aisha Gossen, Dakota Spurl, Jim Doubt, Nick Staples, Elijah Morris, and Dana Smith. Appreciate all of you checking us out uh, last week on Instagram, TikTok, Venmo, wherever the hell we are. All right, let's. All right, I got a couple of uh, tough questions for you today. Hope you're ready. Would you? Rather have to eat 25 li- live worms, like big fat net crawlers, or be locked in a room Ew, no. and in a darkened room with a tarantula for an hour, but not know where the tarantula is. How big is the room? <laughs> we'll, we'll say we'll say a, a jail cell. So what? Eight by eight. OK. Is that the actual dimensions of a jail cell? Uh, I do you actually know the dimensions of a jail cell, or are you just making that up? Uh, let me look it up. I, I think I'm right, but I, I, I could be wrong. So I'm going to look it up real fast. I think a jail cell is 8 by 10, simply because I remember hearing either some show or a rap song talk about an 8 by 10 <laughs> space. I think it's 8 by 10. In, a, in the United States, it's 6 by 8. Oh. Yeah, 6 by 8. Man, that's not very much space at no, all. No, not at all. Hmm. Where is it in other countries? Is that a big jail cell or is that a small jail cell? Does it have a list <laughs> of other countries? Um, hold, hold please. Uh, uh, Brazils are usually half that size because they have such overcrowding wow. in their prisons. However, s- some jail cells in Texas are 11 by 14 feet. So I guess it really just goes. Ooh. I guess it just depends where you go. Yeah. Oh yeah, eleven by fourteen sounds a lot better than three by four, which would be half, which would be in Brazil. <laughs> Man, what was the question? Uh, oh, a tarantula. No, I would take the tarantula, right? Because I don't think the tarantulas are actually poisonous or going to generally bite you. They're probably going to leave you alone. This is yeah, it's absolutely. I would take the tarantula because, like, I would say the animal's most thing that it wants to do is just leave you alone. It doesn't want to come up. Like, if you were a tarantula, do you want to come up through this thing that's 100, 200 times bigger than you and screw with it? 
Like, no, if you're the tarantula, you want to stay as far away from that thing as possible. All right. Yeah, tarantula, dude. That's okay. Yeah, you got to think right. about that. I This is the one Easy. I've been excited about because I'm curious to know how you would respond. Um, you, uh, you either have to let your wife access your browsing history or your boss. Oh, my boss. <laughs> That yeah. was easy. That wasn't even a thought. That was just right off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because look, there's nothing in my browser history that would get me in trouble with work, right? Like I'm doing everything that a normal American male would be doing. <laughs> like I'm not looking at anything. I'm not looking for other jobs, but I am looking for other women. <laughs> so definitely my boss. Okay. Well, I. Which one would you rather do? My wife. I, I would rather have my wife look at my uh, my browsing history for sure. Oh, so you're slacking off at work then? No, I see. When I'm on the work computer, I'm only doing work. I'm not looking up stuff on my no, personal. I mean, personal I'm thing. not. I'm not usually either. I just, you know, I wouldn't want my boss rifling through my search history for for what I don't, I don't even know why. Like there is nothing in it. I just don't really. Just I would feel a lot more uncomfortable with him doing it than my wife. I feel. Okay. Um, right. I, you know, I don't really have a whole lot great on like current events, uh, debate topics here. The, the most shocker in- you've have usually bring such strong topics such as I, world war one submarines <laughs> versus the, I, I have had some doozies. Um, I mean, listen, the, the, about the only thing it's not even debatable. I just can't believe this is that, um, Pablo Escobar's, uh, cocaine hippos, have been uh, legally declared as people, which make them the first non-human things to ever be classified as human. And I found that really hard to believe, but apparently it's true. Wait a minute. They're not classified as human. They're classified as alive. Yeah, a lot, whatever. Not, no, wait, that doesn't make sense because they can't be us. No, they're... They, they're classified as... as, as as the same rights, yeah, yeah, as a human yeah. Not being. as whatever. They're 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 deemed as legal people. Okay, kind of like a business, like a corporation can be have all the same rights as a person. Essentially, yes. But it's. Do you feel like? Okay, how do you feel about that? You feel like that shouldn't be well, okay. There's a, Is a hippo there's a not lot a person? To it, like unpack here. I don't even know if we have the time to do it, but Pablo Escobar, cocaine hippos. Now they have the same rights as people. I mean, I feel like there's just been so many other animals throughout the history of time that you could have given this distinguished right to, and you never did. Do you feel like it? it is odd that the hippo would get that before, like, a gorilla? <laughs> you would think the gorilla would get that before a hippo. Yeah, right? or maybe one of these, you know, movie animals, like one of the bears or something, or Lassie? I would... Uh... Yeah, I would actually, if you're talking about kinds of animals, I would put a hippo way, way down there on the list of animals that I feel deserve that. I'm going to go ahead and put a gorilla. I'm going to put a dog, a bear, a cat, a pig. Oh, the list, the hippo is almost at the bottom of that list where I think like, oh, you know what? The hippo should. I mean, and, you know, I I, I got this from a site in the UK. So whether it's actually verified and I mean, it seemed verified and reputable, but who knows? But the amounts, $28 million in legal fees, it, the these this hippo's legal defense team went through to get them to be classified as legal people. And I know there's, there has to be a reason, right? Like why, there is no like reason as to why they were declared this other than they want it to be. But there has to be a reason. 
They must have like. Well, the hippos didn't want it. It's well, not like the hippos asked somebody. Right. That's not what I meant. But uh, by the way, what color were you when you would play Hungry Hungry Hippos? You were always the blue hippo, weren't you? Oh, I was oh, purple. Yeah. No, I was well, blue or purple. Sense. Underrated game, Hungry so, Hungry Hippos. By clearly the, way. the Yeah, it is. I would put the giraffe below a hippo, but I would put a rhino above a hippo. Mm-hmm. See, I, I would put – we've talked hippos before. I think hippos are underrated. I think they're undervalued in society. See, now, if I had a choice between eating 25 live worms or being in a room with a hippo, <laughs> then I would definitely eat the live worms. But, I, yeah, I wouldn't mess with the uh, – I'm not going to say – I'm not going to say I'm going to mess with the hippo. I'm just saying. Oh, it's November. What's the candle of the month? Ooh, put me on the spot. I, I, you know, I didn't really think about it a whole lot. Um, How did you not prepare for this? It's We've literally done the candle of the month, the whoa. first episode of every new month for two I, years. I know. I, I got to tell you, though, I, I think I let you down. I – I, I haven't bought any new candles. Can we can we postpone this one till ne- till next week? When is the last time you bought candles? Uh, probably the middle of October, I would think. Yeah, I got a shipment in. So you haven't bought any new? Yeah, I got a shipment in. You got a yeah, shipment man. in. I mean, I can tell I can tell you what those were, but those aren't my candle of the month for November. Do you tell anybody else like, "Hey, man, got a shipment of candles in today"? Like, do you? tell anybody else that kind of language right they got a shipment how you doing today john got a shipment of new candles no no, this is exclusive to uh our podcast family here yeah to this i was just wondering if it was like somebody like oh i got the new jordans (laughs) got the new xbox no i i I can got the new metro i can tell you that uh Got to These ship candles me. cost much less than any of those things put together. So Okay. All right. Well, we'll postpone that until next episode when John is ready for his candle Ooh. of the month. Catches him by surprise. Catching him by surprise 24 <laughs> months in a row. I got to keep you on your toes, man. You get too, you know, you get too, you get too settled in, man, with your haircut. Looks good today. I know. Uh, okay. So our top five is top five underrated candy bars. Or candy. candy. Yeah, Top five underrated candy. I guess if it's not a bar, it's just candy. There is no yeah. other thing. Candy. Just candies. It's candy. Okay. Top five underrated candies. What's your number five? Uh, I'm really interested to see where you're going with this one. So my number five, I'm going to throw it right off the bat here. This might be number one, but I just want to shock you. I'm going to go with Peeps as my number five. Why would that be number one? Those are atrocious. Nobody actually eats those. I feel like that's the thing that you buy for Easter or Halloween. It's like, oh, okay, I got a peep, and you look at it, but don't actually eat I, it. Listen, I I haven't had a whole lot in my life, believe it or not, but the ones that I have I have had are aren't that bad. And I they come in different colors, obviously different flavors. I g- give it a shot the next time you have the opportunity to eat a peep. It might surprise you. I've had many a peep in my life, and every time I've wondered after I'm done with it, why did I just I eat mean, that? Honestly, I've never understood the hate for peeps because all they are are just marshmallows, essentially, right, with some flavoring or whatever. And people love marshmallows. Yeah, they don't love marshmallows by themselves. They like to have marshmallows with other things, like you have marshmallow mm-hmm. in cereal, you have s'mores, you have marshmallow with other kinds of foods. You don't. Nobody's just sitting around eating a bag of marshmallows. Well, then you never came to the Shoal household, all right? God, I could actually walk into your house and see you just chewing on a bag of marshmallows. No, that, that actually hasn't happened in a long time. 
Uh, all right, my number five, I feel like, is a much more normal choice. It's Twizzlers. I don't understand how those are underrated. That's probably going to be my thing to you every one of your picks, is I don't understand how this is underrated. Well, I don't understand how a Peep is good, but a Twizzler is a good candy that you kind of forget about. That's what I'm thinking about when I talk about underrated candy. It's like, oh, yeah, those are pretty good. Twizzler. Everybody likes Twizzlers. I, I don't disagree. I like. I can't. I can't say anything bad about. It. Like I don't. I. I wouldn't. Right, but you would never go buy them. Would you ever go buy a Twizzler? Mm, yeah, but yeah. I do enjoy them. I, That's why I'm saying it's underrated. Like oh, I would never buy that, but I do enjoy. It. All right, what's your number five. four? Or for number five? I mean. Uh, okay. Uh, what's so number my, four? <laughs> my number four. Let's go with uh, a what you call it. I don't even know. Oh, wait. Yeah, those are kind of that. See, now that's a good underrated one where you're like, oh, yeah, I do remember those. I have no idea what those taste like. Right. It's like a bar with shit. Well, in I it. mean, literally it, like yeah, nuts it has and stuff, all kinds of sh- oh, shit in it. It's actual shit. Well, yeah. OK, my number four is a York peppermint patty. Hmm. OK. Is that on your list? Or no, not? nobody likes those. Nobody likes York peppermint patties. It's like the Andes mints. They're terrible. More people like York peppermint patties than like Peeps. I'll tell you that right now. Mm. I let's see. I want to. I want to hold on. I just took a straw poll, and you're wrong. I asked my yeah. cat over there, okay. and she's she's she agreed with me. Oh, I forgot you have a cat. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> sure do. All right. Uh, There's nothing wrong with a man with a cat. There's something wrong with John having a cat, which is just ridiculous. Does it come up to you? No, no. Actually, the fact that it's well, technically, I'm in her room. So, because uh, my cat gets its own Have fucking ever, room. God, this is that. This is how much of a man you are in your own house. That the cat gets its own room, and you have no say or control. I know. I just said that I'm in the cat's room. Can we just move on? I. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No one would ever say I'm in the dog's room. <laughs> no, my dog doesn't even have no a room. One. But you are in the cat's Dude. room. Right. A dog never gets its Dude. own room. A cat always gets its own room almost. It's always the cat's yeah, room. Yeah, man. It's never the dog's yeah, room. I fucking lie. I'm, it's because the dog wants to be where you are. On here. Uh, my number three, I don't know what they're called, but they are, they come in like little wax, Listen. wax bottles. And you bite the tops off and drink the fluid inside of them. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Very underrated because that's just not oh, good. Delicious. Put them in the fridge. Oh, they're delicious. Yeah, but does it wait? How good is it? Not cold though. Like right? Like if I just get these off the store, how good is it going to be? I mean, that's your problem if you don't want to. I, I just gave all of our listeners out there a hack. Put it in the fridge. It's delicious. It's not a hack like nobody's ever thought about it before. <laughs> right? It's like putting a ding dong and or some cake in the fridge, man. It is uh, it's so much better than eating it at room temp. Yeah, everywhere else, everybody puts cake in the fridge. Who leaves cake out? I, once again, I think you would be surprised. I, I believe there's many of people who would do that. Actually, now that I can think about it, my family does leave cake out. Uh, my number three is an Almond Joy. Oh, that's my number two. But I have Almond Joy slash Mounds. Ooh. Because uh, they're they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, they're basically yeah. the same thing. Yeah, so that's my number yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty much the same thing. Okay, so then my number two is a Crunch Bar. 
Okay. Uh, just any kind of crunch bar, like a Nestle crunch bar. Does it matter? Okay. At first, I thought your question was stupid, and I was getting angry, and then I realized, like, okay, there are no specifically Nestle crunch okay. bar. Yeah. I know there are other kinds of imitators, but that's the that's the yeah, big that's, one. I I don't know. You know what? That's surprising. You can't really think of a lot of like knockoff candy brands, right? Like you know, you go to cereal aisle, and you can see like, okay, there's Lucky Charms, and then there's like the Toasted O's. Like there's the knockoff cereal that's the same cereal. There really isn't like a knockoff cheaper candy. They cornered they cornered the candy market. They forced them all out. There, yeah. there probably really is only two or three companies, right? That that really are the main. It's like beer companies, right? There's probably four or five of them that control the whole candy market. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I can't think of like, oh, what's the imitation Hershey bar? Um, nothing. I can't think of a single one. Yeah, I mean, In, wow. We just solved the <laughs> riddle here. We have just turned our audience on to something that they did not know. Okay, my number. What was your number two? And I'm enjoy. What's your number one? Uh, raisinets. Fucking love some raisinets. The sheer irony of a. 280 pound man who likes a raisin. Uh, two, 265. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's wrong with the raisinets, by the way? There's nothing wrong with the raisinets. They're fucking raisin candy. That's They're what's delicious. wrong with them. That's what's they, wrong with them. They're raisin they, candy. That's like a fig Newton. Nobody wants a fig Newton. It's disgusting. Name me a chocolate covered, I, whatever, fruit, nut, anything like that that isn't delicious. You can't. Raisinettes. Oh, well, no. Nope. What's your number one? Raisins are the worst chocolate-covered thing. I would rather have a chocolate-covered strawberries better. Chocolate chocolate orange. I've had a chocolate orange. That's better, although I don't know if it's actually an orange or is it just shaped like an orange in hindsight. <laughs> chocolate-covered pretzels are better. Chocolate-covered yogurt is better. Chocolate blueberry. Chocolate-covered coffee beans. Chocolate covered raisins is probably last coffee on my beans? list. No one's eating chocolate covered coffee beans. Yeah. Oh yeah, they are. E- either way, if they are chocolate, any kind of chocolate never nut is better than a chocolate raisin. Well, I well raisin. Nuts. That's why it's my number one because they're underrated. People always look, like you're at the movie theater when we used to do that two years ago, and you're looking at the candy, and you never want to give them a chance, but you should. Right. Have you ever actually bought them at the movie theater? Yes. Wow. What did you pass up? And what had happened when you got back to your seat and the person you were with looked at you and thought, did you just fucking buy Raisin Nets? Actually, I think the couple times I bought them, the people that I've been with have some. Well, you're, it's not you. It's candy. You're not gonna not eat it. But I'm gonna be pretty disappointed if you if we were at a movie and you came back. From the concession stand with raisinets, I would get up, go get my own candy, and then come back and not sit next to you. And I guess that would have to be what you did. I would sit in front of you or directly behind you and harass you for the rest of the movie. I just kick your chair. Oh man, (laughs) that that's fine. I what's your number one? I've never. I'm curious to hear what your number one is, so I can. Have you ever had a bad experience? Skittles. Mm. See, 
You got nothing to say about it. I, I don't like Skittles. No, are good. Skittles are not good. I also don't think they're underrated. Aren't they one of the most popular candies in 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 the world in America at least? No, I would say that the most popular candies are probably the various types of M and M's, Hershey bar, Twix, Reese's. I would say those are your main candies. I mean, Skittles are. I'm gonna look this they're up. It's not good, man. Oh wow! This is the official list of the best-selling candle candy bars in the world. I'm gonna go down it. You just give me a quick yes or no for each okay. one of these. Snickers. No. No on Snickers. I would agree with that. I mean, it's not that great, but I will definitely eat it. And then every time I eat it, I'm like, oh, that is pretty good. Reese's. Yes. Toblerone. Yeah. That's way too much thinking about a Toblerone, man. That's a fast yes. Kit Kat. Yes. Dove. No. Yeah, no on that one, too. Cadbury Dairy Milk. There we go. Give me a Cadbury egg, but no, I don't know what the hell dairy milk is. Yeah, I'd take the Cadbury egg. I don't know what this other bullshit is. Twix. No. Three Musketeers. Yes. Hershey's is number 10. That's interesting. Hmm. I'll be damned. I will yep. be damned. Oh, M&M's, but the United States is different. The United States is M&M's, Reese's, Hershey Bar, Snickers, and... This is the worst list I've ever seen in my life. Oh, wait. Here it is. Okay, this is the United States list. M&M's, Reese's, Hershey Bar, Snickers, Kit Kat, Twix, Twizzlers, number seven. Skittles, number eight. Maybe I was wrong about underrated. Dove Bar, nobody likes that. Musketeers, Starburst, Milky Way, and a Butterfinger. I'd never enjoyed Butterfingers, personally. I've always thought, like, ah. Milky Way, Starburst, all that crap is... Give me Raisinets over everything you just mentioned, except for Reese's. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share, leave a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And let us know, what are some of your favorite underrated candies? Raisinets are garbage. They're... they're, they're... (laughs) They're great in the way that all candy is great. Like, I'm not not going to eat it, but by no means am I going to spend money on it. 